0: Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I am your host, Andreas Kasai, and you are listening to Season 2 of the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, where we spotlight MFP fellows and alumni and their pioneering work to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. We have so much to explore, so let's get started. Dr. Erica Joseph, welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers. Thank you for joining us today. Let me start by asking you to please introduce yourself to our audience.
1: First, I'll say thanks for having me. I'm Erica Joseph. I'm from Plaquemines, Louisiana. I am an adult psychiatric nurse practitioner, a family nurse practitioner, and I've been practicing as a registered nurse, advanced practice nurse over 20 years.
0: Well, once again, welcome. The last time that we saw each other in person, we were on the grounds of Allendale Plantation in Louisiana. Could you share with us what that place was and the significance that it holds for you?
1: I grew up on Allendale Plantation as a child with my maternal grandparents and my mom. My grandparents, they were sharecroppers. My grandmother had a third grade education and my grandfather, he couldn't write, could barely read. And so They never left the plantation. They ended up working for the landowners there. And afterwards they never left and they decided that they would just stay there and raise their family. And so my mom grew up there as a single parent. When she had me, I was there with her and them. And so I grew up there. I went to school um, in West Baton Rouge Parish that's where Allendale Plantation is located. It was home for us and where we grew up and where I learned a lot about providing love and care, compassion. As I shared previously, that's what we had to keep us going.
0: What was health care like during your formative years in that community?
1: So I don't really recall my grandmother going to a doctor until I probably got probably more so into high school years because they did a lot of home remedies. And so if we had um, colds or if we were sick, there was always a home remedy that we used. My grandmother, she would read the almanac and that's where she would get a lot of the remedies on how we would survive because they really didn't have access to health care. She had to go as a third grader and pick cotton. And so what I remember is that when we found out My grandmother was sick. We found out she was a uh, severe diabetic. And by the time we were able to apply for Medicare for her, her diabetes had already affected her organs and also her circulatory system. So she had a lot of neuropathy that had developed. She eventually became an amputee because of that. And because her diabetes was so uncontrolled and hadn't been managed all those years.
0: And this lack of health care, was it Specifically because the healthcare providers weren't around, or was there something else going on, like perhaps uh, perceptions about the type of healthcare that might be available if they did go and seek a, a doctor?
1: Yeah, it was both. There was not access. We really had to drive into town to get care. It was a rural area. So that's one of the reasons why we said I would work in a rural area, and that's underserved because of that. So was that in addition to just not having the resources, they didn't have much income to go and pay for the healthcare that they needed and deserved. So they just took care of themselves the best they could.
0: So what made you decide to pursue nursing and, and healthcare as a profession?
1: Growing up there, we learned a lot about caring and giving back to others. And although my family did not have a lot of resources, they were a giving family. And so what they had, they did give. So they took care of others in the community. So if there was someone that was sick, one of the uh, neighbors, then they would put together the little resources that they had, provide food for them. Someone passed away, they would put together and take food to the family. And so I developed that sense of service and caring and compassion. And so I always wanted to choose a profession that you could help others. And then I also in the end, had to start help to take care of my grandmother. And so going to the doctor with her and my mom, I developed an interest in healthcare. Initially, I pursued my undergrad. I went in as a pre-med major. And then I volunteered at a local hospital, and I was surrounded by nurses. And the nurses were just so hands-on, and they shared a lot with me about the profession. And I ended up changing my major to nursing.
0: And you weren't just an RN or uh, emergency room nurse. You chose a very specific field, psychiatric and mental health nursing, at least later on. How did that come about?
1: As a staff RN, I worked as a critical care nurse. I thought I was going to go to CRNA school. And then I quickly found out after doing some rotations through recovery room and it was cold in there, the patient's. We're always sick, or you just trying to wake them up, and you didn't have a lot of communication with them. You'd see them, and then they're leaving. But I always like that connection, to be able to connect and to be able to teach and educate, because I felt that's what was lacking with my grandparents. I felt like if they knew some things that would have helped her with her diabetes, she could have... And with the means, right? She could have done a lot, lot better. And so educating the patient was very important to me. And so that's how I switched to nurse practitioner track when I uh, entered grad school. And so I finished with the family nurse practitioner role from Southern University here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I ended up applying for a job at the Veterans Administration here where I live. And that particular role was in the psychiatry department. And so that's kind of where it started, and I've been there um, ever since. I'm going on 14 years there. It just sort of fell in my lap, to be honest, because the most I had done with psychiatry as a staff nurse was just a few rotations. And so stepping into the advanced practice registered nurse role as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, I had a learning curve there and I had a lot of support and resources and I'm definitely self-driven. So I, I sought out those opportunities to learn more and it's been a rewarding profession.
0: Specifically, what was it that hooked you? Because caring for people can be rewarding in many different facets of healthcare, but there must have been something specifically about either the veteran community or just psychiatric mental health care in general that made you stick with it all this time?
1: I've started to recognize early when I worked critical care, when I worked um, med surge. although you were treating a client with multiple medical conditions, there was always, in, in a lot of instances, some underlying depression, anxiety. We would have to give anxiolytics or meds to help calm and relax. Or they would have such chronic illnesses that they would end up with depression and those factors attributed to the depressive symptoms that they would experience. So I, I sort of sat there and thought about it as I was taking that position and say, well, you know, you, you really seeing clients that are suffering and dealing every day with these depression, anxiety, certain mental illnesses, and that there was a, a gap in providers and so one of the things that was important for me was to be able to make an impact with the work that I'm doing. And as far as the veteran populations, it's just looking at taking care of our nation's heroes in a way that most don't understand what they have experienced, what they have sacrificed. And so just to be a person that can offer hope. So that's sort of what keeps me there. Just that person that they know really, really believes in them and, and their ability to accomplish their goals that they set and achieve despite their circumstances and what they're going through.
0: Are there a lot of veterans in your community?
1: Yes, we have a lot of veterans in our community.
0: In your family, perhaps?
1: I have a few, several of my uncles are veterans.
0: Did that experience or did what they went experienced, uh, did that influence what you were doing?
1: I didn't quite understand it as a child. I would see my uncles struggling. I even had one that had addiction, but we didn't talk about it in that sense of an illness, right? That they may have been struggling with something. They knew they had served and they'd come back from the war, but that wasn't a talk about why they were struggling so much with the alcohol. I was young and didn't understand it, but now as i progressed through nursing, I realized now what was happening. And so that's another passion of mine, just to address that stigma and just to normalize the talks on mental illness and the importance of paying attention to our mental health and not to be ashamed about it, not to act like it's not happening, or to um, just think that something's going on with this person. Um, Sometimes you would get that the negative stigma of words or that individuals are crazy or that kind of thing that's negative and it prevents them from getting the help.
0: And beyond being able to provide better treatment for the patients that you are attending to, what led you to pursue nursing all the way to the DMP and then to the PhD levels?
1: As I graduated from the bachelor of science degree in nursing program. I knew right away that I would enter graduate school. I just didn't know when to pursue the nurse practitioner track or the CRNA track. And so once I completed the MSN program and I completed the family nurse practitioner, I worked a good bit and always had great mentors. And so in the master's program, my mentor We talked a lot about the doctoral studies and the doctoral programs. And at the time, I told her at some point I would see myself in academia. And we talked about what that looked like and how I would progress through. And so that started my thoughts on the Ph.D. track. However, I was offered funding for the DMP. I thought about it, was told it was going to be a year and a half program, And so I said, why not? Because I still needed to seek funding for the PhD, which, you know, would be a four or five year program. And so I entered the DNP program because I'm a clinical advanced practice nurse in the thoughts that that would help me as a uh, leader within the practice role. And so I completed the DNP in 2015 and then I was able to secure funding from MFP Within a year after, I, I was almost done with DMP, so it just was meant to be the way it happened. I received the funding, which allowed me to complete the Ph.D. program.
0: And beyond achieving these credentials, what do you think you've gained in terms of your capacity to address the psychiatric mental health needs of, in particular, marginalized or people from underrepresented
1: backgrounds? So I feel that I've gained several things. I've gained the ability to, as a African-American provider, to find ways that allow me to better connect and, and advocate for the population of minorities in a space where I can work to help reduce the disparities in health care. I've been awarded opportunities to network and to sit on advisory panels, to sit on several committees and do advocacy work for this group, a population. Personally, it's allowed me to move in a space where I'm able to just reach the highest level within the nursing profession and to um, make the impact that I see. I'm I'm working on that path to make an impact to better the psychiatric care in African-American and minority populations. Specifically, I've been able to use my platform to reach others in the community and bring others along where I'm a trusted provider, I'm trusted in the community. And it's because of the work that I'm doing. So I feel that there's buy-in from other leaders in the community that trust me, that allow me to come into their space, those gatekeepers, and help me to spread the message about the importance of mental health and awareness.
0: As you continued with your education, high school, college, and then on in your professional career as an African-American woman, what were some of the other challenges that you faced doing specifically because of your identity and how did you navigate those?
1: So I finished from a a HBCU and it was a four-year program. I received my bachelor of science in nursing. I can always recall our our, um, faculty and professors telling us finishing and having that, that bachelor's degree would allow us to be promoted a little bit easier in the workspace and whatnot, because as entry to nursing, there were several programs that are diploma, there was associate, there was bachelor degree. And so I can recall our first job getting there and we found out that associate degree nurses, they were making like only 25 cent less than us. And then they were promoting them above us. And most of those nurses were white. And we were really confused by that, right? I can remember having conversations with some of my classmates about that. We finished and, you know, our HBCU, so grateful for them to put out so many minority providers and nurses. But when we got to our first jobs, we realized that What we had been told, the workspace was not creating that for us and those opportunities for us. That's just one example. I knew that going out, graduating, that I wanted to be a critical care nurse. And I was not afforded that opportunity, although they offered the job to a new grad and told me that I couldn't get it when I was a new grad. And I had some situations just in patient care and taking care of patients thinking I was the housekeeper. And and I'm talking in 2000, you know, because I finished in 99. And so, and I'm in all white uniforms. And so the way I handled those challenges, um, really for me, is, it was motivation to just keep pushing and to say, hey, no. They were like, oh, we didn't know Southern had a nursing school. Well, yes, we have a great nursing school and we put out the best nurses, you know? So just using opportunities to educate because the, there was just no knowledge about the number of Black nurses they were putting out in some spaces where I went to work. And so just spreading that and then just showing that we had the knowledge, we have the skill set, the talent, the education that comes with it. While that does, in some instances, can affect bringing self-doubt, you had to surround yourself by others who believed in you and who supported you and not let the, those sort of things sort of tear you down.
0: Yeah, definitely. It takes strength of character and being very confident in in yourself. Let's take a break now, Dr. Joseph. And uh, when we come back, we will be taking a deeper dive into some of the more specific research topics that you've been looking into. You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, Brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. The stigma about mental health or substance abuse issues is particularly prevalent in underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. One way to overcome that stigma is to recruit more nurses from all underrepresented communities into these fields, so that they can focus on eliminating stigma about mental illness and substance use through their leadership in research, practice, education, and policy development. Receiving treatment from someone with a similar background builds trust that can lead to better outcomes. The SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association is actively engaged in identifying and supporting nursing students seeking graduate degrees in psychiatric mental health nursing. Visit emfv.org to learn more. Welcome back Dr. Joseph and at this point I'd like us to take a deeper dive into both your academic and professional interests. Uh, A lot of your work has focused on working with the veteran community. You've already touched on this earlier, but if you could explain deeper why you decided to study what's happening with veterans.
1: So I decided to study suicide prevention awareness. That's my interest of research. As we look at the suicide rates within the U.S., suicide is a public health concern. And I feel that it should be everybody's concern. I feel that one life loss is one too many. And so it's been important to me as I work in the area, as I deal with those in crisis, that we're understanding why it's happening and and then what we can do to reduce it and offer that hope. And so that sort of started it and it just sort of stuck. I was doing a lot of crisis intervention And I just wanted to help out more as I was doing it in practice. I wanted to just go a little further with it and went into it as my research topic in my doctoral programs.
0: What were you looking at specifically and what kind of interventions have you been able to come up with that would make a difference for veterans that have suicidal ideation?
1: We know that one person dies every 11 minutes. Due to suicide, we also know that veterans are twice more likely to die by suicide than other Americans. And so it's attributed to a lot of the mental illnesses that they experience and their experiences, trauma. It's been important for me to just understand it better. I started off looking at just the evaluation of how We as providers, like in primary care settings, how do primary care providers assess for suicide and recognize it? Or not necessarily just how, but their comfort level in it and the self-efficacy in doing that. Because what we were seeing in the studies and the literature is that those who had died by suicide or had an attempt, about 50% had seen their primary care provider the year prior to their attempt or their event. And so the question was, what was the assessment like? Did they ask the questions? Have you uh, thought about dying by suicide? Have you had any attempts? Have you done any acts and steps in planning to take your life? And so the thought about and what came out of that is if you're looking at the assessment, that quicker referrals can be made for those particular clients who are suffering and that you can make that referral to the mental health team who could hopefully get in and put in some interventions in place to keep that person safe. And one of the things we do is a lot of safety planning. So once a client is identified to be at risk, then they're they're monitored very closely. And then interventions in place, maybe uh, their medication, and also intense psychotherapy to help. That was in the doctoral program. And as I completed the PhD program, I wanted to look more at the risk and protective factors of suicide in minority populations. If you take on a whole minority like that, you gotta do so much in that time, but you gotta get out of this program. So it was narrowed down to African-American veterans population. And I did a secondary data analysis and I looked at the National Drug Use and Survey to look at if a person had thoughts of suicide, if they died by suicide, just looking at the data to see if they had a perceived burdensome, um, thwarted belongingness, seeing if their risk factors for minorities was aligned with what we were seeing in the literature for white Americans. Because the current literature just was showing us that for white uh, older males, that that perceived burdensome, that hopelessness, all those factors were aligned, and so my findings did show that perceived burdensome and thwarted the belongingness, social isolation was factor, and then I wanted to find out though was religious affiliation, their marital status, and their household, if that was a protective factor against suicide. There wasn't enough data to um, pull that out. And so the findings for that wasn't significant. So I definitely want to do more work in that area. And I, I would like to do more of qualitative and just talk. And I feel like I may be able to get richer data by talking to others because the quantitative didn't show me that. Because I, I feel that in my practice, I would see those who had a, a stronger faith, or some connection to a higher being in practice, I would see that they would be resilient and they would push through and they would get to the spot with safety a little bit easier, if I want to use the word there. I want to look further into that and just to see if there's anything with that. And also, as we looked at the household and the marital status, just looking at the social determinants of health and seeing how that impacts as a risk factor or a protective factor based on where they are on the scale as suicide. And so that's sort of where I'm at with the research part of it.
0: When you ask patients or when you've talked to patients who have had suicidal thoughts, are they forthcoming? Do you have to tease it out of them? How does it how does that work?
1: Uh so, so most times it's sitting in a non-judgmental space and actively listening. And then sometimes they will just tell you, sometimes it's subtle things they may say, like what's the use? I don't have any reason left to live. You listen closely for those things which allow you to then probe and ask another question. Well, what are you, what does that mean? What are you saying when you say you don't have any other reason to live? And so the interview just sort of goes, unfolds in that way. You listen. Sometimes they may not tell you, but for the most part, I find that they do want help. And if you can have an interview where they trust you to share their true feelings and what's going on and that you can help them, that they will share it. And so I always approach my clients, that I'm there to help them. I'm not there to judge them, and that they can share with me if there's something to harm someone else or themselves, I have to disclose that. But the other stuff I say is confidential. And so I just gain trust, I build a rapport, I talk to them like we're sitting here now. And so I'm not trying to just look as I'm a forbidden, I'm here as a human being that's in this space to help you.
0: You mentioned earlier that part of your research was to see if there are differences when you look specifically at African-American communities to see if there's anything different going on than what the generalized population studies have revealed about older adult men and suicide. Are the rates of suicide different?
1: We're seeing that there's an increase um, which is the other reason why I wanted to look at it more. We're seeing that there is an increase on African-American males who are dying by suicide. I can recall people saying, oh, Blacks, they don't take their lives and things like that, but it's happening more. And so that was the question on why. I know here locally, it's been on a rise here. And um, one of the things, I recently in the last year got the uh, certification for psychological autopsy because and going in and asking those questions and trying to figure out why the things that happened and unfolded prior to and why in the African-American community, where there's that lack of trust, the white providers weren't able to really, not able to get in to some of those families. And so I did get that certification in hopes that one day I'm able to serve in that space to help gain more information that's going to help us to understand it and what's happening but we do see where it's increasing in the African-American community among youth and adults.
0: And this is um, you know, beyond the veteran community. This is in general. In general yeah, population. this is in
1: general. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: When, what do you think is driving that? Is it because they're not getting the, I guess, what we would call culturally appropriate care, but that shouldn't be a driving factor? What is driving the increase? Why, why do more African-American boys and men want to, die by suicide.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the um, questions we've been asking and trying to figure out more why it's happening more. As we look around and we think about the trauma that Black males are facing just in our world that we live in today, that in itself is a lot to deal with. And if we sit and just talk to um, African-American males and we can hear their stories and then to try and live in America and do the best they can do and face all the challenges. Some are resilient and some are not, but I think it goes back to a lot of all the um, experiences.
0: There are many challenges, of course, to being uh, from a minoritized community. Clearly things are not stacked the same for if if you're from a different ethnic group or if you're African-American in this country, but this has been the case for almost since the beginning of this country. And things like the socioeconomic challenges, all of those things have been happening for decades now. So is there specifically something new that's happening, do you think, that is driving the increase in in rates?
1: Yeah, I think it's so many different factors that's happening. When we look at the socioeconomic status, yes, that's been ongoing, we mentioned We look at the gun violence, we look at the lack of opportunity, we look at the gun violence and um, police officers and Black Americans losing their lives. I think it's just a number of factors, not having the same opportunities and all those things, all those experiences are traumatic, right? And you sit, it's just even hard to watch a lot of what's been happening on a day-to-day And so I feel that it's just a lot of different factors that are going into play there that we still need to dig in and and ask the questions and figure out more of what's what's happening and why now. Mm -hmm.
0: All those things, the gun violence, how police treat African-American men in particular, all of these things are not necessarily new, but I think partly what is new is the access to that information is new or has accelerated. People have their cell phones, social media is there, people are recording these events, reporting these events, It is, and people are consuming this information a lot more. And I think that is one factor that I can see that's very different. And it'll be interesting to see what the research will say about that, because it seems that it hasn't been done yet, is from what I understand from you.
1: I, and I hadn't studied it to that extent. I'm not certain if someone else is looking into it in that way, but... It's definitely questions that we will always be asking about what is driving it now. But like I mentioned, those are some of the factors that I can see that we're seeing more prevalent and it's being highlighted, it's being shared, it, the content, is just everywhere. There's so much access to it. And then what are we doing about it? That brings a whole nother factor to it.
0: Interesting questions to, to ponder. <music> When we talked earlier this week, you mentioned how a lot of your time is spent providing pro bono community psychiatric and mental health services in the community. Tell me more about that.
1: So a lot of what I've um, been doing probably the last five years or so, it's been more over the last two and a half years since the pandemic, is doing a lot of just educational talks and speaks and talking to people who are in crisis, helping them to understand their symptoms and where to go for help. I've also been on a lot of panels in the community, mostly those in the faith-based community, and also in my sorority is a, a public service organization, and we focus on physical and mental health and primarily in the Black community. So doing a lot of talks, educational talks, raising awareness on suicide prevention, and also the importance of mental health in the Black community.
0: It's interesting you mentioned the faith-based uh, organizations, because historically, a lot of mental health-related challenges, situations, conditions in the communities, uh, including in African-American communities, they've considered that the best way to handle these is through, through prayer. There's also the stigma related to mental health issues, and you don't want it to be public, or you don't want it to really go outside of the home. And that's also seen as a test of your own faith in God. So what is driving the change in attitude?
1: As you asked me that, I'm I'm thinking of a a church that I visited and I always leave my email or my number for them to reach out afterwards. And this particular member of, of that congregation emailed and said, I've been praying. Like I prayed, and I've been praying and nothing's getting better. And, I, and after hearing you talk, I know I need help. That's what we're trying to do, to understand that you can have prayer and then you can have counseling, that you can merge the two together, that it's not testing your faith or not believing that things will get better just by your prayer, but just understanding that you can merge the two to have better results, better quality of life, and that it is important, and And that's a way that we're trying to uh, normalize the conversations around mental health and well-being, and also to address the stigma and letting them know that it could be any person of just an episode or a crisis away from a mental health crisis. So that's the talk, just making it plain, making it simple, and explaining a lot what it looks like. Sometimes people don't realize that's what they're dealing with. So just going in and just talking about what depression looks like, talking about what anxiety looks like. I don't even get You know, when you get there, a large percentage is, that's what they're dealing with and they recognize it. And then they start to ask the questions. And so just understanding that, you know, you can merge the two.
0: Earlier, you said that you're spending more and more of your time doing this. So it seems that the demand is growing.
1: Yes, it is growing. We know with the the pandemic that there was the Mental Health of America survey, it showed us that Over 70% more people have responded of having more depressive and anxiety-related symptoms. And then we have all these high-profile cases too, right? Of our athletes in Hall who are, you know, stepping up and speaking out. And so that makes it easier for people to talk about, I'm dealing with this too, and asking for help and asking for people to come in and sometimes just also those pastors are realizing the the need, right, and the necessity to have professionals come in and talk to people who are dealing with real issues. While they've done their spiritual counseling and their Christian counseling with them, they are realizing the, the need to have those professional mental health providers come in, share, and educate, and raise awareness.
0: With that, we will take a short little break, and we will be right back. You are listening to Season 2 of Mental Health Trailblazers Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, showcasing the inspiring journeys of emerging nurse scientists addressing the unmet substance use psychiatric mental health challenges facing marginalized communities in America today. The SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association is a federally funded program granting fellowship awards to nurses of all underrepresented racial and ethnic groups who are pursuing either a master's or a doctoral degree in psychiatric mental health nursing. To learn more about this program and how to apply, visit emfp.org. Dr. Erica Joseph, it's great to have you back. I'd like to lighten up the discussion here just a little bit. So a few rapid fire questions with tweet size soundbite responses. If you may, let me start by asking you, who is your nursing hero and why?
1: My nursing hero, I can remember our visit at the American Nurses Association is Nurse Mary Mahoney, just being the first American nurse, I'd have to say her.
0: And what about her makes her your hero?
1: Just to um, lead at that time, the resiliency to to get through so many obstacles. I have a statue here in my house of her. Um, just a reminder that you can, you can do it. You can make that impact as well.
0: Thinking about your life and where we are in this world at this present time, what are the values that you want to pass on to your two daughters?
1: Um, show compassion, show respect, love for others, and always give back.
0: And what would you say is your mission in life, in very short.
1: My mission in life is just to make an impact and to spread joy in the lives of others.
0: Wow, ah, beautiful. Talking about spreading joy, what is your favorite holiday and why?
1: Christmas is my favorite holiday because uh, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, but it's also a time where I like to give to others and be with family. And I like, to de- I like the decorations.
0: okay well decorations another thing about Christmas is people cook up a huge storm Um, if you were to have your dream dinner party who would you invite
1: Um, I would invite Serena Williams and Venus Williams and Simone Miles and Naomi Osaka I just think they um, show such strength and character and also the Obamas I would invite them and also Mary J. Blige because she's my favorite artist.
0: There's only one man on that list. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that?
1: Um, I just because I'm always looking at the uh, powerful women that striving to do and to be and to just figure out how they were able to do and what they're doing and making their uh, mark. So I end up just following those women and their and what they've been able to do.
0: And what would be on the menu?
1: Uh, Louisiana food, seafood, gumbo, mainly shrimp dishes. That's my favorite.
0: And would you cook or would you cater?
1: Cater, I don't cook. You don't cook? (laughs) That's the one thing I don't do.
0: If the movie or when the movie version of your life is made, which actor would you pick to play you?
1: Um, Viola Davis. She is a phenomenal actress and also advocate. So I just, I would have her.
0: mean that's interesting because you're the second person to mention Viola Davis. So um, that's good. And I always say, if they hear about this, then they might get involved somehow with the work that we're doing. So we'll see. And <laughs> thinking about all the things that you do, uh, you know, you're a mom, you are a professor, you are a researcher, you are practicing, and you are also volunteering. It sounds like a lot of, a lot, a of, lot of work. How do you maintain work-life balance?
1: I'm reading this book right now. I'll be honest, I struggled with that. And so one of the first things I, I started doing, my mentor said you had to say no to some things because you can get pulled in so many directions. And so I initially started with just being intentional about where I chose to spend my time and and with whom and just making certain it would add to what I truly wanted to do as far as I saw myself and what my goals were. And so then now I'm reading this book, Exponential Living by Sherry Riley. And it talks about that there's no really such thing work life balance, but just allowing peace to lead you. And so that's what I'm focusing on. And it talks about peace being the CEO of your life. And so I'm focusing on what peace is and trying to live it in that way instead of just trying to figure out because I am definitely a, a that high achieving person and it, I laughed when I read it that you'll be trying to figure out now how to master your work life balance list you know so don't put another thing on your list to do so uh, <laughs> so I really just focus on now the top 3 goals my top 3 goals and living in the moment and and loving my family mm-hmm.
0: You are listening to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up, brought to you by the SAMHSA Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association. Listen to all of our episodes at emfp.org, the SAMHSA MFP at ANA's YouTube channel, or on your preferred podcast app. For more information about the MFP or to provide your feedback, email us at mfp at ana.org. Look for us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Then click subscribe, like, or follow us. Dr. Erica Joseph, welcome back. And turning to the last segment of our podcast, I wanted to explore with you what your engagement with the Minority Fellowship Program has been. So let's start with how you found out about the MFP.
1: So I found out about the MFP program just doing an internet search as I was searching for funding for the PhD program. When I found it, the application had closed. I was a few weeks off. And so I uh, emailed Ms. Janet, found out, yes, the deadline had passed. And so I made, a bookmarked it and I just followed it until the applications reopened for the next year, submitted my application recommendation letters, and I was appointed. In 2015.
0: A lot of people, when we ask them that question, their response is either a mentor told them about it or a professor. So it's a lot of like personal references, but it's great that you found it by um, researching it. What role do you think that the MFP has played in your trajectory as a nurse scientist?
1: The MFP has played a valuable role in my trajectory just to have that support. If I would have even completed the program, um, just had a lot of challenges once I, after I enrolled, but I had that network and support of fellows and mentor that would encourage, check on me, send messages, which allowed me to just push through those challenges when I was having a rough time in my life. And so I'm very, very grateful for the MFP because I was never alone. It was definitely family oriented. It was definitely a group where they wanted to see everybody win and succeed and um, supportive advisory team and directors and mentors. And so I'm very grateful.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear always that it's not just the financial support, but it's everything else that's packaged around it. In fact, perhaps even more than the financial support is those things that make it a truly special and dynamic space for, for people who've gone through the program. And we're getting to the end of our conversation. Dr. Joseph, I could keep talking to you for a lot longer, but I know that your time is extremely precious. So finally, as you look back on your journey from that little girl boarding the bus outside your home at Allendale to becoming a DMP and then a PhD prepared psychiatric mental health nurse scientist, what are some of the thoughts, the words that come to your mind?
1: I'm so grateful. I always live in a space of gratitude. So definitely gratitude. Definitely blessed. Amazing. I'm in awe, really, just of where I'm at and what I've been able to achieve. I just have a grateful heart and just live in a space of gratitude.
0: And looking to look the future, where would you like to see yourself in, say, five years, ten years from now?
1: So you heard me mention a nonprofit and so I, I always tell, when I talk to youth, I tell them to dream big. And so I actually, I'm dreaming big that my nonprofit will be on the scale. Like I do, I raise a lot of money for American Heart and Watch of Dimes. I'd like to see my mental health nonprofit organization in that same space. And I also, within five years, hopefully that my psychiatric practice is really thriving in this community and my long-term goal is hopefully to be like a leading healthcare provider for behavior care across the state, where I'm able to have multiple practices throughout.
0: Well, Dr. Joseph, thank you very much for your time and uh, Godspeed on that journey. I look very much forward to being in touch and uh, documenting these precious moments. So thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting underrepresented communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by
1: the U.S. government.